Welcome to the Mark Driscoll Ministries podcast. To find more Bible teaching from Pastor Mark, visit markdriscoll.org. Thank you for listening and being a part of Mark Driscoll Ministries. And remember, it's all about Jesus. Alrighty, 2020, Happy New Year, Happy New Decade. How many of you came here expecting a high-power, high-octane, life-changing sermon? Group? All right, let me lower your expectations. That's probably not gonna happen. I am exhausted. My daughter got married on Friday and I am a hot mess minus the hot. I will just be honest with you. All I was thinking about was the wedding. And yesterday, I was a, it was like zombie apocalypse day for me. And so the 9 a.m., I said some stuff. I have no idea what it was. And, and the same thing's gonna happen right now. So we are in the book of Philippians. We're concluding a great series on joy in Jesus Christ. If you've got a Bible, go to Philippians chapter four. And the, the timing of this section of God's word is incredibly timely because here we are, brand new year, brand new decade. This is the time of year when most of us are trying to get our schedule organized, trying to get our budget organized, trying to get our health organized, looking as far into the future as we can see and planning appropriately. The problem is we, even if we intend well, we don't always plan well because life doesn't go according to plan. Let me just field test this with you. How many of you looking back at the past decade as we enter a new decade, some stuff happened that you didn't see coming? Anyone have that experience? How about this last year? Were there some things that you didn't know were coming and you didn't have a plan for? That's exactly where the apostle Paul who writes the letter to the Philippians finds himself. For those of you that are new and joining us, we're glad to have you. The storyline of this book of the Bible is that there was a church planted in a city called Philippi by a man named Paul. He ministered there for some years. It's a healthy, loving, joy-filled church. He is writing them a letter from another city called Rome, which is 800 miles away. The reason that he is writing them is they had concern for him. So he wanted to let them know his friends, how he was doing and his pastor, what he was learning. And he pens the letter to the Philippians. The circumstances are that he's in jail. He's been wrongly arrested. His reputation has been destroyed. And now he is awaiting trial and possibly sentencing or even death. When he sits down to pen the letter to the Philippians, he is literally chained to a Roman guard and he wants his friends back in the church to know that God has filled his heart with joy. It's shocking that this would be the theme of Philippians. A man who is poor, not rich. A man who is homeless, does not have a home to return to. A man who has no wife or children to comfort him or for him to enjoy. A man who does not know if he will live or die and knows that his reputation has been destroyed. He experiences, despite circumstances, joy. And it's joy in the Lord. Not in the circumstances, but in the Lord, which sometimes provides a joy in spite of the circumstances. In 19 of 104 verses, he mentions joy, joyful, rejoicing, and enjoying. And today he's going to give us five things that if we put into practice will increase your joy this year. I don't know about you, I would like to prophesy 2020 as a year of joy. And joy comes down with the Lord Jesus 
I bring you good news of great joy for all the people. Jesus has come. Joy came down with Jesus. Joy still comes down with the Holy Spirit. You can have joy no matter what your circumstances and enjoy this year that God gives you. And he's gonna emphasize for us today God's love and how God loves us and our response to him can be in five loving ways to increase his gladness and our joyfulness. Number one, um, these are sort of goal markers for you this year. Love God with your mind. Jesus Christ said to love the Lord your God with all your heart, that's your emotional life, with all your mind, that is your mental life, with all your soul, that is your spiritual life, and with all your strength, that is your physical life. The Lord Jesus Christ wants a relationship with all of you. And here, Paul is going to single out the vitality of a mind that is devoted to God. It's where Paul tells us elsewhere, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Change starts in the mind. Life change starts in the mind. Mental health begins with thinking God's thoughts after him. So here's how Paul says it, Philippians 4, as he is concluding this great treatise, finally, brothers, so we're all family and here to help, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Your mental health is like your physical health. Your physical health is largely dependent upon what food you bring into your body. Similarly, your mental health is dependent upon what thoughts you allow to reside in your mind. You cannot have physical health without changing your diet. You cannot have mental health without changing the focus of your thoughts. And so he gives us here six categories of things to find ourselves fixated upon. Uh, John Milton, the great Puritan poet, he said, a mind is its own place and in itself can make a heaven of hell and a hell of a heaven. What he's saying is this, if your mind is wrong, your life will be miserable even if it is a gift from God. This is where I can sadly testify. I know people, they have a wonderful spouse they don't enjoy because they have the wrong mindset. They have children that they could be making memories with and they don't because they have the wrong mindset. Their sins are forgiven, but they live cheerless because they have the wrong mindset. That ultimately your mind can turn heaven into hell and can turn hell into heaven. And when we get the mind of Christ and we're transformed by the renewing of our mind, then the Holy Spirit helps us to think in these six categories. We'll study them briefly. Number one, he says, think about what is true. What is true? Truth is that which corresponds with reality. The philosophers will call this the correspondence theory of truth. Truth is that which corresponds with reality. We need to understand and accept reality so that we can live life as God intends. So let me just give you an example. Uh, what if I told you I was 25 years old? Is that true? No, it's not. You can look at me and say, that's not true. That's not true. Um, what if I said I'm 25 in my heart? You'd say, yeah, that, that doesn't matter because that's not reality. That's not reality. Your bangs have gone home to be with the Lord. You can't read your phone anymore. You are not 25, right? You're not 25. Reality is the truth. Reality is the truth. And the problem with truth in our day, it has been slaughtered and it has been devastated. This is why something can happen and you listen to this news report and you listen to that news report, you're like, I don't even know what happened. 
because there's no truth, there's no reality. It's hard to get the facts anymore. I had this occasion last night, I was watching uh, the news. And if you, wanna, if you wanna bottom out your joy, just watch the news. And so I was watching the news last night and they said, uh, hey, uh, one of the most wanted terrorists on earth who has killed hundreds of Americans and was plotting to kill hundreds more has been, has been eliminated. And I was like, woohoo, yay. And they said, but some people are very unhappy. I was like, terrorists? I'm sure they are like, you know? And they said, no, 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 there's some Americans. I'm like, what Americans are pro-terrorism? Like, you know, if they're blowing us up, it's not hard to all get on the same page, right? We don't like that. And so what they said was, many Americans are very, very upset. So then they showed a protest, okay? And, it, and, just, and there was like 10 people. They're like, we shouldn't kill terrorists. It's like, what the heck? I thought that's not a movement or a groundswell, that's 10 people. I could get on the internet right now and say, I think crunchy peanut butter is better than creamy peanut butter and 10 people would show up to fight about it, but I don't think we should make the news because it's not a thing, amen? <laughs> but, it's tr but what it is, it's trying to control the narrative. You and I do the same thing in our life. We try to control the narrative rather than tell the truth. Jesus says, you'll know the truth and the truth what? Sets you free. People are in bondage trying to control the narrative. They're set free when they receive the truth of God. And this ultimately begins and ends with the word of God. Jesus prays, John 17 is high priestly prayer, longest prayer in the Bible from the Lord Jesus. He prays, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is the truth. You can't know the truth apart from the word of God. You can't deal with reality apart from the word of God. And my job is to tell you the truth and your job is to make a decision and I love you, but let me tell you this. Jesus Christ is God. Jesus Christ was born of a virgin. Jesus Christ lived without any sin. Jesus Christ healed the sick. Jesus Christ cast out demons. Jesus Christ died on a cross in your place for your sins. Three days later, Jesus Christ rose from the grave. Today, Jesus Christ is alive and well. He's seated on a throne, he's high and exalted. He is worshiped by angels. And when you die, you will not stand before a mirror, you will stand before him. If you belong to Jesus Christ, you go to heaven. If not, you go to hell. Now, some of you say like, I don't agree with that. That's the truth. That's the truth. Say, I don't believe it is. I believe you will see, it is the truth. Number two, okay? Think of that which is honorable. This is that which is worthy of honor. And the reason that this is a pain point in our present culture is we have parades for things we should have funerals for. And we have tolerance for things that God is intolerant of. And so we tend to honor that which is dishonor, dishonorable. And then, and then ultimately there is a culture of confusion that leads to death. Honorable is character that is exemplary, that follows in the pattern and precedence of the character of Jesus Christ. Just as a, a short sort of sidebar, this is the word that is used in parenting as well. It tells children to honor their mother and father, that those that are under authority should honor those in authority. But for those of us who are in authority, you're a parent or a ministry leader or a business leader, it is also incumbent upon you not just to be honored, but to live in a way that is honorable. And it makes the job of those who are under your leadership far easier to honor you if you're honorable. 
Now, sometimes we have to salute the uniform just because they are in authority and we need to honor authority. But if the authority is honorable, it makes life so much easier. I was dealing with a family recently and they just kept quoting this verse over and over and over and over and over to their kids, honor, honor, honor. I said, if you gotta keep quoting the verse, there may be a problem. Are you living in an honorable way? And they said, literally, not really. Well, then don't tell the children to honor you. First, honor him, live in an honorable way and see if the children don't follow in the honorable example. So just think about things that are honorable. Number three, think about things that are just. This is right or righteous or godly or good in God's sight. And this is the opposite and the antithesis of selfishness. Selfishness is what do I want? What do I think? What do I need? How do I feel? The question is, what does God think? What does God want? What does God need? How does God feel? That's how you come to the point of understanding that which is just. In addition, he talks about that which is pure. This is innocent or clean. The opposite of this would be dirty or defiled. This oftentimes is used in the Bible regarding sexuality. If all you're thinking are corrupted thoughts and and dirty concepts, then ultimately you won't be focused and fixated on that which is pure. And what's pure is marriage. And what's pure is the, the, the love, the covenant love that God gives a man and a woman. And again, so much of technology is driven to promulgate and promote that which is impure that God's people need to be very fixated and focused upon thinking purely, particularly when it comes to matters of sexuality. He also tells us to think of that which is lovely. This is pleasurable, enjoyable, just for its own sake. How many of you love seeing the sun this weekend? Wasn't that great? It's warm out, you can go for a walk. The sunsets are amazing. As you do, remind yourself there is a creator. He is beautiful. He made beauty for you to enjoy. That's what he's talking about. Hike Sedona, go up to Payson, play in the snow in Flagstaff, visit California, but please come back. <laughs> in addition, number six, that which is commendable, that's of good character or worthy of imitation. And what this is, this is taking things, people, examples that are commendable and mentioning them to encourage others to continue in that pattern. This is reinforcing positive good behavior. Now, the opposite of all of this is what dominates media and social media. Instead of truth, we ultimately have a world in which there is a remarkable amount of that which is untrue. Things are said that are not true. Don't believe everything you hear. Don't believe everything you think. Guard your moral outrage because what this world wants you to do, it wants you to wake up and it wants you to find out that which is untrue, dishonorable, unjust, impure, ugly, and despicable. It wants you to be consumed by that, fixated on that, thinking about that, posting on that, resharing that, and having that be the center of your emotional and mental life, thereby, thereby poisoning your mind. And God is saying, start with my word, start with my presence, start with me. You gotta start your day with God. I don't care if you watch CNN or Fox, you need Jesus before you turn on either of those. Amen. 
that ultimately your mind needs to be thinking God's thoughts after him. And what this is, this is not the denial of reality, but it's the greater reality behind the reality. It's that there is a God who is over and under and through it all. He is good, he is loving, he is kind, he is present. He is seated on a throne. He is coming again to judge the living and the dead. And ultimately he is the source of my joy and allows me to navigate this world by the strength of his joy. Number two, he goes on to say, love God with your obedience this year. Philippians 4, 9, what you have learned. Okay, so Bible teaching is certainly part of the Christian life and received. So a preacher can preach, but a hearer must receive. That's an act of worship. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. He's talking here about setting an example. Leadership is in large part setting an example. That's what it is. It's living in such a way that others can imitate you as you imitate Christ. We don't do that perfectly, but we wanna do that progressively as we walk with the Lord Jesus. Here's the key. This is the big concept. Practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. What he says is that peace is inextricably connected to practice. It's not just what you believe, but it's what you do. It's not just what you believe, it's how you behave. Our world does not lack information. It lacks wisdom and obedience. There's plenty of foolishness and disobedience. And the Bible was written, not just for learning, but learning that works itself out in living. To say it another way, God wrote the scriptures, not just for your information, but for our transformation. The goal of the Bible is not that you can pass a test, but that you become more like Jesus. That's the whole goal of the scriptures. And, and so what he's talking about here is obedience. And I am glad that we've got the, the Bible on our phone. I'm glad, but let me just tell you, that's not far enough. It needs to live in your heart. The Bible says, I've stored up your word in my heart. That's where it needs to live. It can't just be on your phone in your hand. It needs to be in your soul and in your heart. And then it is living in obedience. Some of you need a new sermon. Some of you need a new verse. Some of you need a new book. Some of you don't. You just need to use that which you've already learned. How many of us have learned something we're not doing? Amen. How many of you have a treadmill that is right now a clothing rack? Right? Yeah, that's what it is. <laughs> How many of you have a gym membership and you can't remember where the gym is? Right? We, we have things that we know, but they don't benefit us until we do them. And that's what he's saying here. He's saying that ultimately obedience trusting in God by obeying God. And let me say, if you don't obey God with what you learn, your life will have deferred maintenance. We got this crazy old Jetsons church plant, spaceship, you know, church building. There was years, decades of deferred maintenance. The air conditioning was older than me. I'm not running that good. Imagine how the air conditioning was doing in Scottsdale, Arizona. Deferred maintenance, deferred maintenance, deferred maintenance. How many of you have ever bought a home that had a lot of deferred maintenance? And you, you're always working on it. How many of you have bought a car? And you realize once you start driving it, a lot of deferred maintenance. Some people's lives have a lot of deferred maintenance. God said something, but they didn't obey. God taught them something, but they didn't act upon it. This is where you can have deferred maintenance in your relationship with God, your knowledge of scripture, your prayer life, your generous giving. You can have 
deferred maintenance in your marriage. You can have deferred maintenance with your kids. You can have deferred maintenance with your grandkids and your friends. You can have all of this deferred maintenance and you don't think it's a problem because it's not a problem until it's a real problem. And then all of a sudden life ceases to function rightly and you're feeling it very painfully and you're responding very urgently. But let me tell you this, we tend to underestimate what we can accomplish in decades and we tend to overestimate what we can accomplish in days. There's a pastor and author who calls it long obedience in the same direction. That obeying God consistently, faithfully, it helps prevent crisis and emergency. Some will come, but many are preventable by maintaining your life, your relationship with God and the priorities and instructions that God gives you. So my question to you today would be this, what has God told you? What has God instructed you in? What has God called you to that you have not yet acted in obedience, but you need to activate that obedience this year. Otherwise turning the calendar is nothing unless we turn the habits. That's what he's talking about. Number three, love God with your contentment this year. Philippians 4, 10 through 13, I rejoiced. So this is again, the theme of Philippians here, it appears again. He doesn't rejoice in his circumstances. He doesn't rejoice in his suffering. He doesn't rejoice in his imprisonment. He rejoiced where? In the Lord. This is the key and the secret of Christian happiness. God is a cheerful God. God is a joyful God. God is a happy God. This is his default disposition, if I could use the language, his emotional state. That being said, if God is always joyful, this makes sense that he had just told us previously, rejoice in the Lord always, again I say rejoice. If God is constantly joyful, we have access to an unending, inexhaustible source of joy, and that is the joy of the Lord. God does have times and seasons and moments of grief or anger or sadness, but his default disposition is that of cheerfulness and joyfulness. And Paul, even though he is in dire circumstances, because he is in the presence of God, the presence of God is bigger and more powerful than the presence of his suffering, his opposition and his persecution. And he rejoiced in the Lord. He rejoiced in the Lord greatly. I mean, he's really joyful. Now imagine this, you get a letter from a guy in jail. How's he doing? He's, I'm doing great. Well, you must know something we don't, right? You, you, you must know something we don't. You must know the Lord who is the source of joy. Let me tell you this, joy does not come from people and things. Joy comes from the Lord. Some of you, you thought as soon as I got married, as soon as we had kids, as soon as I got a house, as soon as I got a car, I would have more joy. Those of us who are there will tell you, it's a, that's a lot of work and costs some money. It's not always the funnest. That ultimately, if your joy is in the Lord, you can enjoy the people and things God has given you. But if your joy is not in the Lord, you are incapable of enjoying the people and things that God gives you. It's more about what happens in here than when you have out there. He goes on. Uh, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length, you have revived your concern for me. So they have been faithful, generous ministry partners. He's far away. And what he is saying is, you were indeed concerned for me. They heard that their pastor was in jail and struggling and suffering, but you had no opportunity. There was, you know, there was an online recurring giving where we could just give it to the account and he could access it. They literally had to take a special offering 
They put it in a bag. They handed the money to a guy named Epaphroditus and he had to walk 800 miles with a bag of money. Let me just say, you trust that guy if you give him that job. Right after what Judas did to Jesus, the guy who's carrying the money, you keep a double eye on that guy. And Epaphroditus is faithful and he brings the gift all the way to Rome. Paul would have needed this because in that cultural context, if you're in prison, there's no food, there's no provision unless other people are generous toward you. There was no such thing as human rights, not in that Roman empire. Not that I'm speaking of being in need for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content, content. That is a great secret to joy. Let me say this, when it comes to contentment, God creates Satan counterfeits. God created us to be content. Satan's counterfeit of that is coveting. That's why one of the 10 commandments is against coveting. That's why God tells us not to covet. Coveting is ultimately demonic. How do I know? Coveting started with Satan and demons. There was no such thing as coveting. There is God who is eternal, makes angelic and other divine beings, the sons of God, they are called, and these divine beings are content being created, not creator, worshiping God, not being worshiped by God, taking orders, not giving orders, they're content. Some grow discontent and they start to covet. Well, God has a throne, maybe we should have a throne. God tells people what to do, maybe we should tell people what to do. God gets glory and worship, maybe we should be glorified and worshiped as gods. The difference today between an angel and a demon is contentment. Demons are discontented and covetous. Angels are content and worshipers. Every day you will make decisions to either invite the culture of God's kingdom down into your life with contentment or pull the culture of hell up into your life through coveting. And marketing and advertising and media and social media exists in large part to get you to covet for you to compare who you are and what you have with who others are and what they have. Just think of it. I mean, how many people post on their social media something that really isn't reality, but the whole goal is to get you to covet? I wish I had their beauty. I wish I had their car. I wish I had their vacation. I wish I had their spouse. I wish my home was that big. I wish my house was in Paradise Valley not in Buckeye, right? <laughs> right? Contentment is a key to joy because God will give you someone and if you're not content, you won't enjoy them. God will give you something and if you're not content, you won't enjoy it. And the myth in our culture is ultimately that there is a direct line between your income and your lifestyle. Your quality of life is not ultimately contingent upon how much you make, but how much you enjoy. And that requires contentment. So Paul goes on to talk about this. I know how to be brought low. Think of Paul's circumstances for those of you that know him. How low were some of his situations? Homeless, beaten, shipwreck, riots, prisons, left for dead, stoned, not this, but throwing rocks, right? I mean. He's had some rough days. He's had some, and this is a rough day for him. He says, I know how to be brought low. How many of you, you've been brought low? I've been at the bottom and I know how to abound. 
He's like, I, I know what it's like to be in the real estate market in 2006 and 2007 and 2008 in Arizona. I know what it's like when you're on the top of the mountain and I know what it's like when you fall off the cliff. I know how to abound. This is an internal circumstance in any and every circumstance. Dear friend, I love you. We don't believe that. We believe that if our circumstances change, our cheerfulness, joyfulness, and contentedness will change. And it's not true, it's an illusion. How many of you, things did change, but you were still not content and joyful? This is an internal miracle of God, not an external provision from God. He says, in any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret. So this is something that is only possible for the children of God who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a secret that God reveals here to Paul and through Paul to us. Of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And here is one of the great life verses in the Bible. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, let me say this. What he's saying is this. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. Our culture and our world, particularly as we enter into an election year, thinks in categorical terms of rich versus poor. The Bible does not have that kind of simple thinking. It is very different. Let me ask you this. Paul was poor and he was rich. How about Jesus? Was Jesus rich or poor? Yes. Okay. In heaven, before he came to earth, was Jesus rich or poor? Rich, rich. If you ask Jesus, what's your portfolio? You would open the file, you would look at the page and the balance sheet had one word, everything. That's quite a portfolio. Jesus has everything. And then he comes to the earth. Is he rich or poor? He's poor. He's laid in the feeding trough of an animal. We just celebrated this at Christmas. He comes to poor, humble peasant parents. They can't afford a typical sacrifice. So to dedicate him, they bring the sacrifice of those who are poor. The Bible says that he couldn't pay his taxes, that he was homeless, and the little bit that he did earn, his bookkeeper, Judas Iscariot, was stealing from him for three years. Today, is Jesus rich or poor? Rich. The Bible says that heaven has streets paved with gold. I said it before, I'll say it again. If you're like, I don't know, there's so much gold, it's just in the way. What do we do? I don't know, make some highways, get it out of the way. You're doing really good when you use gold as a paving material, amen? Jesus is, so here's the point. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, it matters if you're content like Jesus. That's what Paul is saying. And what happens is we have something called prosperity theology. You'll be happy when God makes you rich or poverty theology. You'll be happy if you get rid of all your stuff and do tiny house nation. Okay. Anybody see? I don't write the mail, I just deliver it. This is what is happening. So, so, so what happens is these people have a garage sale and these people show up and buy all their stuff. All they're doing is just trading cheerlessness. That's all they're doing. Because it is not the rich versus the poor, it is the content versus the discontent. Okay? So I'm not against making money, but let me just say this. Some of you are pursuing a lifestyle that is beyond your means. It has you overextended. It has you in debt. It has you stressed. You are the borrower who is slave to the lender and you've gotten yourself there through not being content. Some of you say, I got a car, but I wish I had that car. Well, you know what? Yours runs. I live in an apartment. Well, in the history of the world, the quality of life that you enjoy has been never experienced by this many people. 
you can do this and water comes out, you can do this and other things go away. It's amazing. We live in an incredible world. And you would think that after achieving this quality of life, people would be happy and content, and they're not. The number one prescription medication in America is antidepressants. People are stressed, anxious, overextended, and depressed. How do you get there? Discontentedness. How do you combat this with ultimately a contented heart? A contented heart. Let me ask you this. What are you not content with? Who are you not content with? What are you coveting? Who are you coveting? I need you to know that's poison to your soul. Okay? And Paul says, here's a secret. Get your joy from the Lord. Enjoy the people and things that God gives you and be content. Okay, be content. Be content. Number four, love God with your partnership this year. Philippians 4, 14 through 20 says, yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. Kindness by definition is sharing in the trouble of others. We don't say things like, that's your problem. You made your bed, lie in it. That's your burden to bear. No, we say, I'm here to help, love, serve. I have a God who loves, serves, helps me. He's a burden lifter, not a burden giver. Right? That's, that's ultimately what Paul is saying. He said, it was kind of you to share in my trouble. And you Philippians, the church that he planted, know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, so he plants churches in various places, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you also. This is kind of a crazy... Statement, I don't know if you know this, the Apostle Paul writes about half of the New Testament. There's 27 books, he writes 13, maybe 14. There's a debate on the book of Hebrews. That means that Corinth, Galatia, Thessalonica, all of these churches that he is writing to are churches that he founded and planted, but they don't partner with him. That's kind of amazing, really. He brought the gospel of Jesus Christ to town. Churches come into existence the same way that the world comes into existence. The word of God is spoken forth. Ultimately, when the word of God is spoken forth, things come into existence that didn't exist. That includes creation and that includes the church. And they don't partner with him. But the Philippians did. They were the one faithful, devoted group of people who no matter what Paul was doing, they were partnering. Now, in saying this, Paul is thanking them and he is commending them. And he goes on to explain the heart of what he is talking about. He says, uh, even in Thessalonica, you send me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. What he's talking about here is that vision requires provision, right? That, that ministries need fuel just like cars and people. And he's saying, you provided that fuel and you've been generous to do so. I have received full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus, the guy who delivers this special offering, the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice, acceptable and pleasing God. He's quoting the Old Testament there. And this is language of the Old Testament. You need to know this. In the Old Testament, there is no occasion where someone comes to worship God empty-handed. Can't find it in the Bible. In the Old Testament, you would bring either your tithe or your offering. Your tithe was your 10%. Your offering was above and beyond for something special and unique. What Paul is saying here is that they have been doing their tithes and offerings and that ultimately it is an act of worship and they are coming to God to participate and partner in the ministry of Jesus Christ. 
He goes on to say, I'm well supplied having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God that ultimately we give. We give through churches, ministries, and organizations, but we give to God. And my God will supply every need. Let me say this. He doesn't say greed. God provides need, not greed. You need to know the difference. Some of you are frustrated, angry, and disappointed with God. He may have met your need, but you may have pursued your greed and he doesn't meet your greed, he meets your need. This is back to contentment. My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus to God our Father, be glory forever and ever and ever. Now, what I love here is he is talking about partnership right here. For those of you that are in business, think in accounting terms or think in, think in corporate terms. Okay? What's the difference between a customer and a partner? Do you know the difference? A partner is really invested and cares about the well-being of the organization. A customer just comes in to take what they want or to get what they need. Okay? Here's, here's how it works in the church for those of you that are new. And we're a three-year-old baby church plant. But at the end of the day, the Christians should be the partners and the non-Christians should be the customers. See, we don't make the non-Christians pay for a building. We don't make the non-Christians pay for a restroom. We don't make the non-Christians pay for the technology. We don't make the non-Christians pay for the website. We don't make the non-Christians pay for the Bibles that we give away. If somebody's got a crisis or a need, we don't charge them by the hour for counseling because God's people pay for it. God's people pay for it. And so ultimately, when a, when a Christian thinks like a customer instead of a partner, that's where death becomes a process that settles into a church. Because if the Christians don't have a heart for the non-Christians, then the non-Christians won't have any one who is investing for them to meet Jesus. Let me say this, if you are a Christian, God wants you to be a partner in his kingdom through his church, not just a customer. Give me an example. I was walking in recently with uh, somebody who's volunteer leader in our church, great godly person. We got out for lunch and there was apparently like a, a cup or trash on their side of the car in the parking lot. And they reached over and picked it up and they carried it in and they put it in the wastebasket. You know why? They're a partner. They didn't say, hmm, I wish, wish they did a better job cleaning the parking lot. Right, this is the difference between staying in a hotel and having a home. In a hotel, you're like, I give money, you take care of everything. In a home, you're like, I gotta clean it. I gotta do the dishes. I gotta do the chores. This is my partnership. If you love someone and they're just crushing it at your company, really doing a great job, and you want to incentivize them to stay and to do a great job, you know what you do? You make them a partner. If you are a Christian, you are a partner in the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You are a partner in the kingdom of God. I, this language is fairly new to me, but it makes so much sense. Because if Jesus wins, we all win. If people meet Jesus, that's all a win, amen? And, and here's what you need to know about the valley. The valley, let, let, me, let me say that vision sometimes is tied to provision. The valley is the fastest growing city and county in the United States of America. That means that the need here is the greatest. In addition, this valley is the number eight most biblically illiterate in America. San Francisco's number seven. 
And just so you know, San Francisco is this close to being biblical. They're this close. Okay, we're right behind them at number eight. And Wallet Hubs and Forbes have declared with their research that the least charitable state in America is Arizona. So we have the greatest need and the least partnership. Okay, that's not been the case here at Trinity. We love you. Uh, last year, we had some interesting months, but overall, you guys have been a generous people. And so I wanna encourage you to continue. But what Paul is talking about here is that for the gospel to not just come to you, but to go through you for others, you need to go from being a customer as a non-Christian who receives grace, salvation, forgiveness, and ministry to a partner who provides provision for the vision. That's exactly what he is talking about. So let me do this. Uh, I'll tell you this year, we're gonna do some things that I just wanna make you aware of uh, so that you can partner with us in prayer. And my encouragement to you this year would be to get involved. You could do that by joining a life group or Team Trinity Track. And we'll do that right after this service. And we'd love to meet you. In addition to being involved, invest. Thinking about this year, Lord, in faith, what do you want me to give? Setting up that recurring giving at the trinitychurch.com or the app, and then invite. Invite family, friends, coworkers, neighbors, there are people that are Christian and are moving here and they need a church family. There are people who don't know Jesus and we wanna invite them into the church family so that they can meet God our Father and their big brother, Jesus Christ. And, and I wanna tell you that what I am encouraged about and God has really enlarged my vision. Um, some years ago, I, I didn't have clarity of vision. I, I had sense of calling, but not clarity of vision. My vision's getting real clear and real big. I'm gonna share a little bit of it with you so you can partner with me. First, I wanna tell you that God has partnered with us. And I don't wanna be a part of anything that God's not partnered with. And so when we were as a family trying to seek God's will some years ago in a difficult season for us, we prayed, fasted, we sought wise counsel, we submitted to our pastoral overseers who were helping us make these major life decisions. And uh, we had a heart that was growing for the valley. And we weren't sure though what the will of the Lord was. So. Uh, Grace and the kids were gonna fly out and meet me here. And I went to a conference uh, to see some friends in Florida, a place, uh, part of Florida I'd never been. And uh, I went out to uh, lunch at a Mexican restaurant. I got lost. I was looking for a coffee shop. I got lost. I ended up in a Mexican restaurant. And I walked in and I said, uh, I said I'll be back in a moment. I'm gonna use the restroom or something like that. And some guy had his back to me. And on the other side of the room, he's like, are you Pastor Mark? Because he could recognize my voice. Okay. He's a pastor I've never met, lives in another state. The conference was still going. We were skipping a session. We were being a little naughty. So, you know, this is all God's, you know, God works through naughty too. He's really gracious that way. And so he comes over, he's like, how's your family been praying for you? You know, what's God showing you? Really great guy. And uh, we visited, I went over and ate, and then he came back over and he said, I just feel like this group of guys that are with me, their ministry leaders said, we just wanna pray over you in the Mexican restaurant, okay? So I'm like, okay, I'm cool with that. So they pray over me in the Mexican restaurant, sitting in the booth. And then the pastor opens his eyes after he says, amen. He says, so weird. He said, I had a vision and I just feel like I'm supposed to share it with you, total stranger. He said, I saw your family packing your bags, moving to another state. It'll be very sunny and you'll be very happy. He said, does that make sense? I said, yeah, my flight leaves in about an hour. I am flying to Phoenix. Grace and the kids are meeting me to see if that's where God wants us to be. Okay. 
So moral stories, if you need to know God's will, find a Mexican restaurant. That's what I'm telling you. <laughs> so we land, we land in the valley and I go to meet with the pastors who are the leaders in the valley because if we're gonna do ministry, we wanna partner with God's people and there's some great people here. More than 40 churches from the valley and the nation have sent us gifts and items so that we could get this church up. And they met with me, asked questions, welcomed us to the valley, said if we wanted to move, they'd love to have us, laid hands over us and prayed for, for me and for my family. One of the pastors who's a godfather in the valley then took me for a hike up a mountain. He's like, let's go for a hike. I'm in boots and jeans. I didn't, you know, I hadn't moved to Arizona yet. I didn't understand fabrics and footwear, but I, uh, <laughs> I did my best. And so we climb up to the top of this mountain, this hill, and he says, I just feel like God's gonna raise up a big church and you're gonna serve the whole valley. He said, so I just feel like we needed to come up here and I needed to pray over you. And he did, he's a wonderful guy. So then we moved here and we were unsure. Are we gonna plant a church? God, what are we gonna do? What are we gonna do? Some of you have heard this story, but about 40% of you are new. Our church grew by 20% last year. Every Sunday last year, we had more people than the same Sunday the year before. Many of you are new. We love you. We're glad to have you. Some of you haven't heard this story. And so then we came home from church one day. We were attending a church as a family and I was unsure what we would be doing. And the kids called a meeting. We need a family meeting. Okay, what do you kids want to talk about? They're like, we want to plant a church. We've got five kids. They all love Jesus and serve here at the church. And I was like, you want to plant a church? They're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We want to plant a church. Let's do it as a family ministry. Oh, well, that's amazing. Our five kids, we want to serve Jesus. I was like, okay, what do you guys wanna call it? So they named it the Trinity Church after Grace's dad who passed away and planted a church called the Trinity Church. I go online, the trinitychurch.com is available. I didn't even think, I literally was looking at it like jesusbiblechurch.ninja. I mean, cause I thought, <laughs> I thought all the good domains must be gone. The trinitychurch.com is available for a couple hundred bucks. I can afford that. And so then um, we start praying for a building. And we, at our dinner table, we start architecting the church for the kids. Because the best way to have a church family is to have at the center a family. That's my opinion. And so at the end of the day, we were praying, praying, praying. And I was looking at renting a building to maybe start a church plant. We moved here. We, we didn't have any family, friends, job. We weren't sure how it was going to work out. And so I got on a plane and I flew out to meet with one of our pastors and overseers, Pastor Jimmy Evans in Dallas. And I said, okay, Pastor Jimmy, here's what we're thinking. Do you agree? Do you sense this is the Lord's will? Anything that is on your heart? And he said, God's gonna give you a building. It's gonna seat 800 people. It'll be right off the 101 freeway. It'll be grandfathered in as a church and you'll be able to buy it. So don't rent a building. It's awesome to have a prophet on your board because he can tell you how to make your plans. It was, I was like, okay, well, that's very specific. I mean, that's very specific. So I fly back to the valley and I tell the family, all right, this is what's gonna happen. So I call the realtor. He says, it doesn't exist, it's never existed. I called Jimmy, I'm like, it doesn't exist, it's never existed. He said, it's coming. Okay. Then I hear about this building and it was off the 101. Here's what's crazy. Easter last year, we set up 793 chairs. I kid you not. Pastor Brandon goes, Jimmy was close. I look up in the booth and there were seven seats. It was exactly 800 seats in the row. Right? So I, I called the church that's meeting here. I was like, uh, are you gonna stay? Are you gonna go? You're in a rental. They said, it can't be bought or sold. It's been tied up. 
We're gonna pray about it. They prayed, they said, we feel like God wants you to have it. So we're gonna vacate it, give you the keys. We got the keys on the 50th anniversary of the grand opening of this quirky church building. We had our first informational meeting and then we started work parties. Lo and behold, in the middle of it all, it becomes available for purchase. So now we need a down payment. So I, I talked to the denomination that owns the building. I'm like, okay, I wanna buy the building, but I, here's, I, I don't have any people or money. Other than that, <laughs> this thing is a for sure. You know, other than that, this is a for sure. And so literally, I kid you not, we prayed as a family, the phone rings, I answer it. A friend of mine from out of state says, God laid it on my heart to help you, what do you need? And I said, I can't tell you, you're my friend. There's a specific amount that I need immediately to secure the deal. I asked the denomination to give me a year to raise the rest of the money and that they would serve as the bank. He told me the number, it was exactly what we needed. We secured the building and then we started working on it and gifts came in from all over the world. I didn't ask anyone for anything and God provided everything. That is, that is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And much of that was through you faithful saints, so thank you. And we were able to buy it from the denomination because I couldn't go to the bank. See, we believe in Jesus, they believe in math. That's the problem with the bank. You can't go into the bank and quote Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Like you can't do alone, you know. You and so God has provided, we've got a ton of equity, things are going really, really good. And I'm really, really encouraged. And my vision is growing. And in God's providence, where we find ourselves is we're in the entertainment district, eight to nine million people a year are coming to our neighborhood and it is growing and expanding. This is as close as you can basically own to the 101 freeway, the rest is all tribal land. It's an amazing opportunity. A second word that came to me from Pastor Robert Morris, one of our overseers and pastors, and he and Pastor Jimmy uh, serve on our overseeing board. He said, you're gonna need to dig deep because God's gonna build tall. He said, the higher the building, the deeper the foundation. He said, in the early years, teach the Bible, love the people, get to know, build relationships, dig real deep, because God's gonna build real big. And he also said, uh, Pastor Robert did, he said, uh, God's gonna bring the shepherds and then he's gonna bring the sheep. He said, so in the first few years, just focus on leaders, mature saints, and then God is going to bring a lot of sheep and you're gonna need a lot of shepherds. So that's what we've been focused on and that's what, the authority over me has helped guide us in and toward. But let me tell you what I see coming. We're three years old. Like I said, we were up every week last year over the prior year. We baptized hundreds of people. Some wonderful things are happening and I am absolutely certain that the best is yet to come. What I see is at current growth rates, these two morning services filling up in two to three years. At that point, uh, we will need to go to a third morning service, which means I will need to preach a shorter sermon. The reason I tell you is you need to start praying right now for that miracle of God to happen, okay? <laughs> in addition, then we'll need to go to an evening service on a Thursday or a Saturday so that we can do a capture. And then we'll be looking at probably year five at four or five from now going multi-site, another location, opening capacity because we will have hit the limit of what we can do. To get there, we need to upgrade the AVL. The Fisher Price speakers only go about halfway into the room. It was cutting edge, top of the line, Fisher Price gear when we got it. 
uh, but it doesn't go to the back of the room. So we got to fix the audio. We're going to expand some of the kids space because our kids ministry is large and growing. And, uh, and then in addition, starting in Daniel next week, Lord willing, there'll be new projectors and we'll put the sermon up because some of our older saints and the people who sit in the back are having a hard time seeing. These are just some hospitality improvements so that more people can come and to hear the word of God and to learn about the son of God. That being said as well, in my heart and in my vision for this year, I'm really excited next week to start the book of Daniel. It's about how to live as a faithful, godly person in a culture that's lost its mind and a political system that's insane. It may be applicable, okay? Okay. Maybe. Then this summer, we're gonna jump into the book of Romans. And then in the fall, we're gonna jump into the book of Proverbs. One of the things I'm also really encouraged about, we're gonna take uh, men's ministry. Men's ministry at the Trinity Church is the largest ministry. The largest ministry in our church is men's ministry. If I can get the men to love their wives and love their kids as Jesus Christ loves them, it's a game changer for the valley. It's a game changer for, for legacies and families. And so we will be calling it Real Men. New branding is rolling out. Once we start here shortly, we will live stream and simulcast it online. We will put it on Facebook, YouTube. We will have a curriculum kit that helps other churches follow in that example because I am firmly convinced that one of the weakest aspects of ministry in America is to get men to become like Jesus for the benefit of women and children. That's a deep conviction of mine. So there's a lot more I could say. We'll have a prayer and vision night on Wednesday. If you come, you get all the details and you can ask the questions. But what Paul is saying is for the gospel to expand, for people to meet Jesus, for the kingdom to advance, it takes partners, not just customers. Again, non-Christians are customers. We just love and serve and give. Christians are partners. We are the ones who love, serve and give. That being said, and he's gonna close with this. Oh, let me say this too. Go back, 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 back. I forgot this. Um, uh, ah, it's okay. Next one. <laughs> I mean, I was gonna talk about it, but I don't have time to talk about it. And so I'll pray about it. All right, love God with your words this year. So here's where he, he closes. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers, we're family. We're here for you. We love you. We wanna build relationships. We open our Bibles to learn. We open our lives to love so that lives and legacies are transformed. That's our thing. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. These were slaves and servants in the government. Don't overlook anyone. No one is beyond the grace of God. When this guy who writes this met Jesus, he was a religious zealot and a murdering terrorist. And what he's saying here is, you know, there are people that are working for a godless government. Some of them are servants and slaves, but they love Jesus. Don't overlook anyone. Tell everyone about Jesus. Pray for everyone. Invite them to church. Give them a Bible. Leave room for the grace of God and see what he does. And he says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. What you need this year is grace. And what God gives is grace. God's grace is sufficient for your needs. God's grace is sufficient for your year because God's grace, he says, is forever and ever. Amen? God's grace, his love, his mercy, his provisions, his presence, his, his kindness, his affection, his devotion, his humility, 
his compassion toward you. It has, it has no limit, it has no end. It is an inexhaustible source of magnificence in the Lord Jesus Christ and, and there's grace for you. I don't know what the year holds, but I know that there's grace for it. I don't know what the year holds, but I know that there's grace for it. And here's what I want to encourage you with. Your words are either giving or lifting of burden. They either build people up or they beat people down. God wants you to receive this word this year. You are, if you are in Christ Jesus. So my question is, do you love Jesus? Do you know Jesus? Do you belong to Jesus? Have you accepted Jesus? Have you trusted Jesus? And I want you to... <laughs> I just, people need Jesus. I mean, I, I know Jesus. I don't know how anyone lives without Jesus. I don't know how anyone has hope without Jesus. I don't know how anyone has contentment without Jesus. I don't know how anyone doesn't just give up and give in without Jesus. Okay? He goes on and he says, if you are in Christ Jesus, here's the really good news. You are right now in the sight of God, a saint. I know you don't feel like it. I know you didn't put it on your Instagram. Saint Sally, I know you didn't do that. And here's what he is saying, that you, if you belong to Jesus Christ, he's not just made you better, he's made you new. And the new you is a saint. The old you was a sinner. Sin may describe some of what you do, but saint describes all of who you are. Sinner describes some of your past, but saint guarantees all of your future. 300 times the New Testament calls someone a sinner. Only perhaps three of those times it is in reference to a Christian, those are all debated. More than 200 times the New Testament calls the Christians, those who are in Christ, saints, holy, righteous, the children of God. God doesn't see you as you were. God doesn't even see you as you are. God sees you as you will be when he is done with you. God sees you as healthy. God sees you as joyful. God sees you as forgiven. God sees you as reconciled to others. God sees you with Jesus Christ. God sees you like Jesus Christ. God sees you risen by Jesus Christ. And he wants to encourage you. That's who you really are. That's who you will really be. That is where you are really going. That is God's true intent and creation plan for you. I want you to forget what lies behind. That's what he told us earlier in Philippians. I want you to set your face toward your future. I want you to march forward in your walk with Jesus. I want you to not have anxiety, but to seek the presence of God to overcome your hardship. I want you to invite the joy of the Lord to be your strength. And furthermore, you need to see yourself as God sees you as a saint, as holy, as beloved, as new, as righteous, as someone who is being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And what God will do then this year, he will start to lift you up into the person that he is ultimately and eternally destined you to be, amen? amen. I love you, I'm gonna pray and we need to throw a little party, amen? And what I want this to be for you is a moment to meet with God, to consecrate yourself, to consecrate your year, to consecrate your fear to the Lord, trusting that the grace of God will be sufficient for us this year. Father God, thank you for the opportunity to preach through the book of Philippians. 
God, I thank you that in a world of speculation, we have revelation. In a world filled with lies, we have the truth of your word. In a world that has lost its mind, we can be transformed by the renewing of our minds. God, I pray favor, I pray peace, I pray blessing, I pray hope, I pray joy, because I pray Jesus over these people. Lord Jesus, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, that what you have done cannot be undone, and that one day we will see you face to face, and we will enjoy your presence forever. And these will be a glad and happy and contented people forevermore. So we ask for that grace to begin that party in our hearts today in Jesus' name, amen.